Welcome to This is Civity. I'm Gina Valeria. Civity is a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with others who are different, moving people from us versus them to we all belong. In this episode, we welcome Graham Bodie, Professor of Integrated Marketing Communication at the University of Mississippi and Chief Listening Officer with Listen First. Listen First also bridges focusing its efforts on elevating the impact, visibility, and voice of organizations doing bridging work. We explore how Listen First brings bridging organizations together and works to bring more people to the experience of connecting across difference and scales the work of bridging divides in communities across the U.S. We also discuss the act of listening itself and the importance of learning how to listen as well as what listening looks like in different contexts. Okay, let's start with your title, Chief Listening Officer. That's something you don't hear every day, and it's pretty awesome. So what does that mean? What is your role with Listen First? What that means for my role with Listen First is that I manage the onboarding uh, process for new member organizations. So Listen First Project is a 501c3 that operates as a backbone organization for the collective impact network that we call the Listen First Coalition. 450 organizations across the country that do the work of depolarization uh, and uh, teaching people the skills and providing them the resources and opportunities to connect across difference. Um, And so what my job as chief listening officer is, is to hold meetings, um, usually short initial 20, 30 minute meetings with the leadership of those organizations. Um, And I'm always tuning my ears to the language they're using and the degree to which that language resonates with other organizations that are already in the coalition. Um, So I have a pretty decent understanding of most of the organizations in the coalition. um, And I am always looking for opportunities to plug in new organizations and find ways in which we can mobilize and incentivize uh, collaboration Uh, among organizations. When you're listening to organizations, what are some of the things you're looking for to connect with them? Um, What are some of the things that help you do the work you do and and, and help them? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, so I'm listening for the kind of bucket within which that organization might fall. So as you might imagine, 450 organizations, there's a pretty wide degree of variability in terms of the specific kind of mission and strategies and tactics that organizations prefer uh, for their work. So whether they're a um, traditional kind of um, hosting conversations organization like a Braver Angels, a Living Room Conversation, organizations that bring people together to to talk across difference, uh, or they might be more of a, you know, um, NICD Common Ground Committee that um, produces content. So Common Ground Committee podcasts and other events, you know, finding common ground over um, potentially divisive issues, or they might be a a news scraping or conversation scraping organization that looks at what are the conversations people are having or um, what are the ways in which news media are more or less biased and therefore potentially contributing to myths or disinformation. Um, and, and so anyway, so those are just three example buckets that I might be listening for to say, oh, okay, you did this kind of work and so you might best partner with this kind of organization or 
you're looking for an organization that does, you know, that reaches college students. You know, we've got um, organizations like Bridge USA that has chapters at, at colleges. So that would be a good, you know, person to reach out to. So I'm always just listening for what's the kind of work that these organizations do, how they prefer to do their work. Uh, and how they might find themselves sort of productively collaborating and co-creating things with other organizations. So you're basically bridging the bridging organizations in a way. You could say it that way, yeah. We've talked about your role and what you do, uh, and you've alluded to it throughout, but let's really get into Listen First. What is the goal of Listen First? The goal of Listen First, you might have to segment out the, the degree to which we have a goal that's like a public-facing or societal-level goal which ultimately is the reduction or elimination of toxic polarization. So we want to shift societal beliefs, attitudes, values, and behaviors toward bridging. So we want to encourage people to take on the identity of a bridger uh, by listening first to understand. So we want to, to normalize that behavior in society. And we do that through the uh, convening of our monthly coalition call to um, hear from and, and, and allow organizations that are doing this work to network among each other so that they can better you know, reach that societal level goal. From a, the standpoint of the umbrella or the backbone organization, our goal um, isn't necessarily to grow. In other words, we don't want a thousand organizations by this time next year, um, but we do want to uh, invite and include a diverse set of organizations, some of which sort of immediately recognize themselves as and brand themselves as and message themselves as bridging organizations and those organizations that are doing bridging work. But if you told them they were a bridging organization, they would look at you sideways. Um, and so how do we remain or perhaps become more relevant to more organizations that either currently utilize bridging to service some other goal. So we have all these social justice organizations that use bridging. How do we include them in the Listen First Coalition or at least in the campaigns that we're running as part of the backbone organization for the, for the coalition? Um, or if they don't feel like they can be included in the coalition for one reason or another, if it doesn't quite match their um, you know, short, medium, or long-term goals, then how do we work with them, alongside them, or behind them in order to help them uh, achieve the goals that they can achieve through the work of Bridgie? But that work, again, is ultimately in the service of societal change. First and foremost, our North Star is the way in which we treat each other, and we want the treatment of other uh, human beings to be human as opposed to stereotypes um, or, you know, other modes of, you know, flaming each other on Facebook or whatever the case might be. Civity is similar in a way that we, we're not bridging, bridging organizations doing that work, but we're working with organizations inside communities to help them bridge whatever divide it is that they face. So from your perspective, what do you want from your relationship with Civity or, or what do you value in your relationship with Civity? Your focus on local communities, I think, is imperative. We believe that there's no such thing as a national movement to reduce toxic polarization without a commitment to that work in local communities. Um, and so although our theory of change definitely includes um, national messaging and big splashy national campaigns and events and all these kinds of things, 
that kind of work really is only additive or only generative if you uh, have local people, um, leaders and community members doing the work of community development and peace building at the local level. Um, and so any organization, Civity included, that works with various organizations at that local level, probably building coalitions and building um, the infrastructure at those local levels to make to, to allow citizens spaces to feel heard. Um, we believe that work is vital and it's, it's crucial um, to the overall um, you know, goal or North Star of reducing toxic polarization uh, in, the, in the public sphere. As you were talking, you brought to mind, there's no national movement without local efforts, right? But how does Listen First, how do you think about the idea of scalability? Because one thing we've talked about, going community by community is important and it's where the work needs to be done. But that idea of scalability becomes, you know, when you're going one person at a time or one small group at a time, scalability can become challenging. So how do you all think about that? Yeah, I think there's, you know, a hundred different ways that uh, we as the coalition likely think about that. Um, and, and in order to represent that, we've got to be aware of those various ways of thinking uh, about scalability. I think the main way we have thought about, and the, or at least the main way we have um, attempted to show the possibility of scalability um, is through big national uh, events like our America Talks National Week of Conversation that we run every year. And so National Week of Conversation, we held our fifth annual this year as an opportunity for organizations to do what they do during uh, a particular week. Um, it happens to be around April uh, every year for organizations to do what they do during that week so that at scale, in other words, instead of having one organization doing one event during a week, we have hundreds of organizations doing hundreds or thousands of events or offering thousands of activities and engagement opportunities um, for, for Americans to, to, to see, oh, there's all kinds of ways in which I can engage in this kind of work, right? So in other words, at scale, we can get journalists and other media outlets interested in the work if we can show there's lots of people doing lots of things kind of at the same time. And then America Talks is, is the kickoff event or was this year the kickoff event to National Week of Conversation, which is another model of scaling, which is utilizing a purpose-built online platform to um, automatically match the people that show up across some dimensions of difference, put them in a room together, whether that's one-on-one -on -one or in a small group, and provide them an experience that um, mirrors what they might experience if they were to do this kind of thing in their local community. But with people that are all over the country with an appetite for a different kind of experience than what they think or what they've experienced happening before, which is sharing their perspective and being shot down or canceled or otherwise you know, afraid to share their perspective or afraid to um, uh, interact with someone who voted for quote unquote the other guy to give them that opportunity to have a meaningful exchange that doesn't turn into some, you know, big yelling match, right? Um, but as you talk about, you know, scaling, um, if we're gonna take seriously the notion that local communities have to come together to solve local problems as either they emerge or as people see them as potentially emerging. Um, a great example of that from my local area, so I live in Oxford, Mississippi, right up the road is a town called Tupelo, if you do any research on Tupelo, back in the 1950s through the 1990s, 
Um, it was heralded by uh, several national organizations as one of the top 10 community development models um, that, that actually um, got wide and diverse input from citizens as well as support from a diverse set of business and community groups, like money, in other words, um, to, to do the work that they were doing. And, and that was heralded as a model that could be scaled to other cities. Um, I think back then Tupelo had maybe 34, 40,000 people. And so other smaller rural cities. Um, so Tupelo didn't have an interstate at the time, didn't have a major metropolitan airport, wasn't a suburb of a major metropolitan area, um, but it was a big enough city um, where it could attract businesses and people to, to move in. And so talking about community development work at scale, um, it is you go and you pilot something in a city and then you say, here's how that could work in other cities like this city or other communities like this community. And I think a great example of that coming out of America Talks National Week of Conversation is working with libraries. How can libraries be sites for community development and civic engagement? Um, every community has a library. Most community libraries are spaces that aren't white or black, Republican or Democrat, old or young, but are community spaces. Um, and so how do we utilize those community spaces for the work of bridging and, and how do we scale that across multiple libraries and multiple cities and localities? Again, so we can turn that tide of rancor um, and, and, and limit that um, impact of toxic polarization on our civic spaces. I love that. I'm on the board here at our Friends Library in San Francisco, at, at the Friends, and it's the greatest thing because you're right, libraries are such a special place. So you talked about polarization and you mentioned red blue but you mentioned additional divides across race across uh age etc i know that at civity we talk about socially salient differences we we are trying to not necessarily take up the red blue space because that space is very represented by other bridging organizations are you finding that that is the biggest or are there other sort of differences that you see in your work that are that are coming through as it, as in need or as people are desiring to bridge. Absolutely the red blue is kind of the go-to or the or the main focus. Um, and, and not for bad reason. A research study recently showed that the the political identity or political ideology um, has dwarfed other markers of difference including race, education, socioeconomic class for that identity marker that most divides people in today's um, you know, atmosphere. So it's an important, but it isn't, it isn't why I got into this work and it isn't what maintains me in this work. Um, so we also have organizations and there are other examples of organizations that aren't part of the coalition that do really great work across racial divisions, uh, urban rural divisions, and then generational Gen Z and, and millennials versus, you know, other generations. And so connecting people across uh, and then, uh, of course, you know, embedded within race and, and class are also, you know, socioeconomic status and income and um, education. Um, so the bridging space could do a better job of diversifying the kinds of people that we draw. So we draw largely sort of older bluer, likely to be female, uh, living in urban spaces, blue, progressive. And, and so we don't do as good of a job in rural spaces, conservative spaces, younger spaces, 
non-white spaces and so forth, right? But those people are important. You're listening to This is Civity. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with Graham Bodie, Chief Listening Officer with Listen First. We also don't do a good job, uh, which we found out this last America Talks that we tried to, to rectify with ASL or hearing impaired individuals, other um, developmental um, and, and disabilities that disallow people to fully engage in quote unquote normative um, spaces. And so that's a point of growth and a point of diversity that we want to, to emphasize uh, as well, um, is making sure that people with all kinds of, of abilities are able to feel included and uh, participate in this kind of work. Um, and it's hard, um, particularly with you know, relying on technology, because you know, going back to your uh, question about scaling, you know, if you're going to scale these kinds of things, you do have to rely somewhat on technology or you, you've got a really large budget to fly people around the world, you know, around the country or train local facilitators. You know, so there's cost benefit analysis in terms of using technology, but then also recognizing that technology utilization isn't universal. And we have um, pretty wide gaps that mirror other gaps in our society that we've got to be aware of uh, and, and therefore um, be um, always mindful as we're trying to scale that we're not scaling beyond our capacity to reach a diverse sort of a range of people with a range of experiences and ideologies and so forth. That's such an important point. You talked about, you know, that's not the reason you got into it. And I had wanted to ask you, what did draw you to this work? So my PhD is in human communication. I focus specifically on listening in close personal relationships and um, what drives my research is providing complexity or nuance around what it means to be a quote unquote good listener. Um, we've got 10,000 articles. You, you know, you put what is a good listener in Google and you, you can read till, uh, till you fall asleep. Um, and most of that advice is very simple, like maintain eye contact, be quiet, paraphrase, ask questions. But then they never tell you how to do any of those things. And they never recognize the fact that, that good listening is contextual. So how I listen when I'm in a conversation with someone who disagrees with me ought not look the same as how I listen to my daughter when I pick her up from theater camp um, in about uh, 30 minutes <laughs> or um, to my wife, um, you know, later this evening when I'm asking her about her day um, or to, you know, Fox News or MSNBC when I'm trying to get a quote unquote different perspective of, of a particular news story, right? So you know, I come into this work as a as a scholar of, of listening and human communication, particularly in the realm of, of social support or when we're stressed out and we go to someone, what do they do to make us feel better or feel worse about our problem? Um, so, so I came into this work um, wanting to, to kind of, quote unquote, scale more complex models of training in what I call listening intelligence. Um, and, and I find a, a pretty stark application in trying to listen to people who come from vastly different worldviews and life experiences that happens to be politically motivated. You know, I always say, like, I don't care about politics. Uh, I don't really want to ever live in a world where politics runs my life. But, but the fact is, is that politics runs our lives right now, um, for, for better or worse, uh, if we let it. And so to use my you know, knowledge of the of the literature and my experience doing consulting and coaching for the last 10, 15 years inside of organizations and, and to, to bring that to scale, to use a word we've used several times, or how 
do you provide everyday Americans with those skills and resources in order for them to think differently about themselves as listeners and to, you know, not just kindergarten, turn on your listening ears, crisscross applesauce, you know, mouth shut, whatever. Nothing wrong with those um, pieces of advice. It's just they don't go far enough to allowing us to really be the kinds of listeners that we can be and acknowledging that we'll never be perfect. It's an ongoing, lifelong learning experience. As somebody who, you know, I, I always joke, like my wife and I are both PhDs in communication. So uh, students are, are oftentimes, oh, you must be great, you know, communicators. Like, well, I know what I should do. And I know when I make mistakes, how to correct them. It doesn't mean that I always do what I know I should do. And it doesn't mean that I always know what I'm supposed to do. But in hindsight, I can go back and I can analyze that from 40,000 feet and I can use different kinds of words and phrases and vocabulary to help analyze the problems I'm having in my marriage or with my kids or with a coworker. Um, and, and I can diagnose that and then create solutions around that and therefore change my behavior. And so I want to help other people be their own sort of consultant, life coach, sort of listening coach, give them that vocabulary, give them those analytical skills and provide them with the, the case studies and the examples and the activities, right, to help them, you know, become better listeners. And if it helps in the political domain, awesome. Um, but that's not where it stops necessarily for me. I love that. That's great. And I, I appreciate, uh, one, the breaking down of listening. And to me, I, you know, it's analogous in my head to the breaking down of of the word love, right? In Greek, they have different words, but we don't have that. And I really appreciate it. It's different to listen here in this context than it is to my husband or to my nieces and nephews or to someone I disagree with. I, I think that's such an important point and we don't we don't acknowledge that enough societally. I also appreciated this lesson of you're not always going to do it well or right or correctly, but do you have the tools to analyze it and go back and correct what you can and um, move forward in a different way? And I think that's really important as well. In this context of a podcast talking to each other across a computer, do you have any other tips or tools you can offer to people that would make sense in this context? So where I usually start when I have a coaching client or, or an organization that's interested in, you know, building a productive team through listening intelligence, I start by my fundamental assumption is that there are primary habits that drive our listening. Uh, and we've developed those habits much like we've developed habits in, in other domains of our lives, uh, some that are generative and productive um, and others that might be uh, impeding our ability to be sort of, you know, our fullest potential, you know, human self. Um, and, and so for, for any given way in which you've been socialized over your life to listen, um, it's worked for you in many ways, right? It's, it's given you some advantages or some strengths that allow you to be an adequate or a competent listener in many domains uh, of life, right? And that same set of habits that you have toward listening, how you show up as a listener, there are challenges. There's barriers that are in place that are both internal barriers, things that are happening inside of you um, that you can control potentially, as well as external distractions and barriers that are outside of you that you might not necessarily be able to always control. Um, and that's unique for kind of every individual, right? We have some research that we've been doing to, to, to map out what those primary habits are and how they tend to show up in people, but knowing that there is a pretty vast diversity in how people show up as listeners given the relative 
sort of strength or you know level at which they sort of have these habits uh, and, and how deeply ingrained those habits are, right? So, so all of that to say, listening well uh, is first and foremost a self-awareness activity to figure out how you show up as a listener. And once you have that awareness and that vocabulary uh, about how you show up as a listener, what your tendencies are, how you tend to ask questions, how you tend to respond to other people's questions and so forth, once you have that awareness, then you can second step, begin to shift those habits and um, listen differently based on the situation, the person you're talking to and so forth. Um, and then the final step is to start to um, size up how other people are showing up as listeners. What kind of habits do you think are driving other people? Um, and so that you can better speak into uh, a variety of listening habits and be more uh, effective in the kinds of impact that you want to have with people. So if you know somebody is coming to the to the interaction with a certain set of habits, you can structure your agenda, your meeting, your PowerPoint slides, or just you know the way in which you approach them in conversation differently, so that you can be the most resonant and the most impactful. And it's and it's that kind of um, uh, again shifting from thinking of listening as if I only were to maintain eye contact 85% of the time, then I could check that box and now I'm a good listener. It changes the mentality from. Uh, I'm only learning these skills and I'm going to apply them in every single case to I'm learning a repertoire of behavior or I'm sort of populating my toolbox so that I can pull a screwdriver out or a hammer or a drill or um, a crowbar or whatever kind of tool that I need in the moment and be able to employ that tool um, to meet my goals and also help the person that I'm talking to meet their goals. I wonder what that's like now in the in the bridging context with listen first when you're working with people are there any trends or commonalities you find across the people who come to the space the organizations who come to the space and the way people are engaging with each other a friend of mine from from high school that I, I you know I haven't talked to this guy in I don't know 20 years he called me up out of the blue and said um, hey man look you know I've been listening to my local radio station and he lives in Mobile Alabama and so it's conservative radio station He's like, and I've just, you know, over the years, I've become more and more worried and, and fed up with the way in which they are pointing fingers at the, the at the Democrats. Now, now, this guy is a Republican. He's voted for Republican presidential candidates probably in almost every election, you know, self-described conservative. And he's concerned because the ways in which they're dehumanizing Democrats uh, simply because of a difference in belief or a difference in, in, in opinion. And so, and he said, and I was looking for some resources and I noticed the Listen First project and I saw your picture, so I called you. Um, and, and so I've been, started to invite him to some events. Um, and so he experienced a couple of different organizations um, and, he, and he gave me a call. I don't know, this was probably about, you know, six, eight weeks ago. And he said that he was disappointed um, in a particular event, um, mainly because he did not have a chance to fully understand the political affiliations and ideologies of the people in the room. It was more about connecting and unearthing common values and these kinds of connective or relationship building. Um, and that was the purpose of that conversation. What he wanted was an opportunity to deeply deliberate an issue and to do that in a setting where he knew that the people he was talking to were different shades of red uh, and blue. 
Um, and so this, this goes to a tension that I think you'll find in this work um, that doesn't have to be a tension, but, but it can be, which is sort of dialogue and deliberation. And, and of course, you've got um, schools of thought that, that say you can't have deliberation without, without some form of dialogue or relationship building beforehand. And then, of course, you've got schools of thought that said, no, you don't necessarily have to do a whole lot of dialogue. You can just kind of bring people into a room like America in one room, you know, feed them hundreds of pages of deliberative, um, you know, stuff beforehand and then stick them in a Marriott for three days and they'll come out um, with, you know, more um, consensus based solutions and so forth. And, and of course, that's um, a very uh, bad <laughs> summary of deliberative work, but let's just go with it, right? Um, so there's, you know, there's this tension with with what how much time needs to be spent on building relationships with people who see the world differently, and getting to the work of acting together despite those differences, right? Um, and I don't know the answer to that. I think there's many models um, and and many ways in which to approach this, depending on who your audience is and how much experience they have with this kind of work. But I definitely see those two things sometimes in tension with each other, which is um, organizations want to get to the work or the action or the deliberation quicker than other organizations are comfortable with. In addition to different approaches, there's also a time commitment there. And not everyone can do that, right? Deliberative democracy, participatory democracy um, requires people to take time away from their job, from their family, from their extracurricular activities and put it toward doing the work of what we ultimately elect people to do right for us. Uh, and, and the fact that the trust is eroding exponentially um, with our elected official and our government institutions and our institutions of democracy means that we might need to find ways in our local communities and our states and our nation to allow people the opportunity for deliberation without them sacrificing, you know, their livelihood or sacrificing their families uh, or sacrificing, you know, their, you know, running 30 minutes a day or whatever they do for exercise, right? All that to say, what is the role of, of relationship building and dialogue versus deliberation? How do those two things work together? Um, and, and the degree to which we can actually expect the kinds of people that we need to be in the room to show up um, not because they're not interested, but because they simply don't have the capacity um, to do that. Are there any other stories you can think of uh, that stand out to you as you've done this work? You know, I've seen grown men cry. And that's not to, you know, throw out a big, you know, gender-based stereotype bombshell and leave. But the work that is listening deeply to another person, being present for another person, um, and um, like honestly reflecting on why you believe what you believe in conversation with someone that sees the world differently or views the world or, or experiences the world differently than, than you um, is life-changing. Whether that's in the context of, you know, I do a lot of um, uh, consulting inside of organizations. Um, you know, I've had, you know, 60-year-old men who have come up to me after some training in, in listening intelligence. So like, if I had met you 20 years ago, I would still be married. Or if I had met you 10, 15 years ago, I would have a better relationship with my kids. So um, all that to say that this isn't just about, um, you know, having better conversations about politics or being able to talk to your, you know, racist Uncle Henry at Thanksgiving. I mean, those things are important, 
But what's more important is that people can establish and maintain and transform those very relationships in their lives that are mentally and physically health-wise beneficial to them. So having a close network of people that you can turn to when you need them for emotional or physical needs, driving you to the hospital or you know, um, helping you know, with, with childcare or whatever, um, those tangible needs and those emotional needs, having that network of people you can turn to is vitally important. And so it's building community and not just for the sake of now we can all sing Kumbaya around the campfire, which might be nice sometimes to be able to do. That's not the point. But the point is to live in a, a beautifully diverse world with beautifully diverse experiences and perspectives in a way that acknowledges and appreciates those perspectives for what they are um, and uh, allows those perspectives to come into conversation when they need to come into conversation so that we can act together. There's lots of stories of lots of organizations that do the work um, that are changing people's lives. This is life-changing work. It's not just changing politics. It's not just you know, changing voting habits. It's, it's not just creating you know, purple spaces. It's, it's life-changing work. You just described the world that I want as well. Thank you for, for your work. Um, you know, the Listen First Coalition wouldn't exist and, and be as potentially robust and generative as it, as it is and can be without organizations like Civity doing, doing the work that you're doing. Our model uh, at Listen First Project is to, um, you know, to, to serve the field. Uh, how can we provide the resources and opportunities for organizations to do their work better? And in our opinion, that better means collaborating with others and co-creating bigger, splashier, more impactful things together. That's what we want to do, and that's what we want to encourage. And so any of your listeners out there that feel you know, motivated or otherwise inspired, um, you don't necessarily have to you know, join what we're doing. You can by signing the Listen First Pledge. Um, but after you sign that pledge, the most important thing to do is to be connected to an organization like Civity that's doing the work on the ground. And so that's what we will try to do when you sign the pledge is to um, send you emails that give you opportunities to plug in with other organizations. Thank you to my guest, Graham Bodie, Chief Listening Officer with Listen First. To learn more and sign the Listen First pledge, go to americatalks.us. This is Civity features people who are building relationships to dismantle inequities and strengthen communities grounded in respect and empathy. Civity's theme song is Common Ground, performed by Tommy Castro and the Painkillers, written by Tommy Castro and Kevin Bowe, and used courtesy of Alligator Records and Dangerous Entertainment. Thank you for listening to This is Civity.